Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host, Scott, a.k.a. Scooter Hemingway. Hmm, tote scooter. In every way possible, I'm Scooters. Scooters is another word for cray-cray. Yeah, which I be. Which you be. A bee. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We are not experts on any of the topics we present, nor are we professional journalists. We're just two regular Canadians interested in crime and the darker side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque. That's a hat. (laughs) Grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. That's not a hat. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. This is episode 49. Oh my goodness, we're one away, Mike. One away from 50. One away. Isn't that like also your age? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> a toque, for those of you who have yeah. been wondering, is a winter hat. Yeah. A knitted winter cap. Yeah, some places call them beanies, others skull cap. Like it's just, it's yeah, it's just a... A double-double would be a coffee with two creams and two sugars. Yeah, which is specific to, like, the Tim Hortons, which is a Canadian one and up. You walk up, you say you want a double-double, they give you a coffee, two cream, two sugar. McDonald's will give you that, too. It's kind of become part of the lexicon. Yeah. yeah. And a Nanaimo bar is a sweet treat named after Nanaimo, mm-hmm. where it's from. Nanaimo, British Columbia. Yeah, I don't know how to describe what's in it, just goodness. Custard. Oh, is that what's in it? Yep. Custard, some chocolate, chocolate, some wafery. Coconut. Oh yeah, there's a bit of coconut in the yep. bar part. Yeah. So there you go. Those are the answers to those questions that you have been wondering why Mike and Scott say those weird things at the beginning. We th- we thought we'd wait till episode 49 to, to tell that. Yeah. Boy, just wait till we tell you in episode 50. Yeah. So we've been at this a while, clearly. This case was one that I've wanted to do right from the beginning. It was widely covered by international media. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Australian podcast Case File covered this story in their 50th episode. Oh, and a great job they did. They absolutely did. Our friend of the podcast, Anna Priestland, who I met at CrimeCon, actually wrote that episode for Case File. Oh, did she? Yes, she did. Well, well written. This is the story of Huey Han, Bik Ha Pan, and their daughter, Jennifer. Following the end of the Vietnam War in 1975, as late as 1995, Political refugees seeking asylum from the brutal communist Vietnamese government fled to temporary camps set up throughout Southeast Asia. Many did not survive the grueling passage in overcrowded boats, plagued by stormy seas, 
and even pirates raiding and looting the boats loaded with escapees and their few most valuable possessions. I, I have an old work colleague who that is exactly his journey to Canada. Yes. He can tell me about being a child on those boats and people dying. Like it was, it was hell. Horrendous. Yep. They became known as the boat people. The temporary camps overflowing, many resettled with help to countries in Europe like France, Germany, and the UK. Some went to Australia, and some went to the US, and others came to Canada. Absolutely. I remember the United Church in our hometown, the church I went to, mm -hmm. sponsored a family who emigrated at the time that way. Mm -hmm. We helped them to get their house ready, painting and cleaning, etc., moving in furniture, oh, food, of. all that kind of stuff. Kind of you all. The father of this family was named Duck. I briefly worked with him in a local grocery store where he was a baker. Mm. Even though he barely spoke English, he learned and made his own way. Yep. As many of these people did. Absolutely. Uh, Han Pan was also among those refugees who emigrated to Canada in 1979. Han married Bic Ha, also a Vietnamese refugee, in Toronto, and the pair settled in Scarborough, Ontario. Both were of Viet Hoa, or ethnic Chinese, background. Hmm. Neither Han nor Bic were university educated. They both landed steady, decent-paying work at the Magna International Auto Parts Factory in Aurora, Ontario. Hmm. Bic worked on the line making parts for automobiles for a time until leaving to raise her children, and Han became a tool and dye maker. Yeah, fascinating job. The Pan's daughter Jennifer was born in 1986, and their son Felix followed in 1989. Scrimping and saving, the couple wanted the best for their kids. They especially wanted both to attend university to ensure the best education. The Pans had high expectations of their kids and would accept nothing but the best effort and top results when it came to school or extracurricular activity. Oh, I'm anxious thinking about that pressure. Yeah. Jennifer was involved in piano. Yep. And also figure skating. Oh, nice. Han was seen as a tiger dad, and Bick was along for the ride. He wanted to give his children everything he had not been able to have. What does tiger dad mean? Tiger parenting means the parents are involved in every aspect of their child's lives. Some see it as very controlling, not allowing for a child's individuality, but proponents believe it leads to more success in later life. Gotcha. It's practiced within the Chinese community, and that's where the name Tiger Mom or Tiger mm. Dad comes from. You see it with a lot of parents in North America now as well, with, you know, your kids being in sports, and it's just you live, eat, breathe, the parent will be hovering, and oh, I can't remember what the, the label is for them, but... Uh, hmm. Helicopter parents. Well, that's more kind of a parent who won't let their child out of their sight. And they hover. Yeah, but not necessarily controlling and yeah. trying to, uh, you need to be a success and... I'll take nothing less than the best. In 2004, the family bought a large home at 238 Helen Avenue in Markham, Ontario, a city with about 50% of the population having Asian heritage. They were proud of their purchase. So Markham to Toronto is like Richmond to Vancouver. Oh, okay. Yep. 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 With Bix Lexus and Hans Mercedes in the driveway, success looked good on the pans. They'd even managed to save another $200,000 toward their eventual retirement. Dang. You know how much I've got saved up for my retirement? Minus something. Well, you could just like, remove four zeros from that. At 10.32 on the evening of November 8, 2010, a 911 dispatcher in the area received a panic call 
from who would turn out to be the pan's then 24-year-old daughter, Jennifer. Here's disturbing audio of the call. So that's some of the audio from the 911 call. I edited it off a bit at the end. Yeah, it's a long call. It's quite a long call, but it's very disturbing. Yeah, yeah. I've become pretty interested in 911 calls because uh, you really start to do some analyzing when you're hearing it. And there's also usually some pretty heavy trauma. Hearing the father screaming and yelling, yeah. that, that really strikes home. But then you start to kind of analyze, like, okay, is that seem, you know, I, I'm quite fascinated by them. And uh, this one, it's an interesting call. Yeah. Yeah, the father, again, like, that just, that gives me chill. So police arrived at the address to find Han Pan bleeding profusely from a gunshot wound to the face. Oof. He was under the care of his next-door neighbor at the time. Han's English was not the best, and he was confused, showing signs of shock. Oh, for sure, yeah. He tried to relate what had happened just moments before to the responding officers. Han made his fingers look like a gun to let the police know that there were armed intruders. And he also told them that his wife had been shot and that his daughter was upstairs. I'm trying to like envision having to communicate all this with a bullet wound to your face. And you are in English as your second language. Yeah, yeah, wow. Cops enter the house and follow a trail of blood to the basement where they find the lifeless form of Bik Ha Pan laying face down. There was a blue towel over her head and a large pool of blood surrounded it, seeping out from under the towel. Hmm, so somebody had covered her head. They did that prior to shooting them. Yeah, yeah, which is always interesting. Paramedics arrived and went to work. 
but the efforts were fruitless. Mrs. Pan was dead. She'd been shot three times in the head at point-blank range. Eesh. Police find Jennifer still bound loosely to the upstairs banister outside her room. She had her hands tied behind her back. She cried for them to untie her, but the police officers refused, saying they had to ensure that there were no remaining armed suspects in the house. Hmm. After clearing the house, they cut the black boot lace off Jennifer's wrists with a pair of her own scissors that they'd gotten from her room. She seemed quite panicked, which is par for the course in a case like this. Of course. Jennifer watched as her father, Han Pan, was loaded into one ambulance prior to being seen to by paramedics herself. After ensuring that Jennifer had not been injured or sexually assaulted in any way during the attack, she was brought to the Markham Police Detachment of the York Regional Police. There, she related her story to Detective Slade just hours after the attack. After the usual protocol of being cautioned about the potential consequences of false statements and signing a waiver, Jennifer began telling her harrowing tale. Yep. Yeah. And what a tale it is. And this first interview is an hour and 48 minutes long. And we're going to play it all? No. Oh. It's available on YouTube, as are the other two. They all total about 10 and a half hours or so. Hmm. We'll post links to all relevant media in our show notes. Jennifer's long black hair was in a single braid to the side of her head. She was wearing black yoga pants, a gray long sleeve shirt with blue slippers. She looks much younger than her 24 years. I would have assumed her no older than 14 or 15 upon seeing her. Oh, really? I've never seen a photo of her. Even after uh, listening to other stuff, I, I've never seen a photo of her. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I absolutely, 14 or 15. Yeah. Wow. Easily. So young looking. But she was 24. Wow. Jennifer says that while she was watching TV in her bedroom, she heard a bit of commotion coming from downstairs. She thought her mother might have been looking for something she couldn't find. Mm. Hearing her mother yell for her father in English, a language rarely used in the home, is what really drew her attention. They usually used uh, Vietnamese or Cantonese. Which I would, I would do as well in a native language. I would use the yeah. most comfortable language. Jennifer claimed when she opened her bedroom door to see what was going on, a man Jennifer referred to as number one grabbed her and tied her hands behind her back. She was taken downstairs and forced to her knees. Man number two was wearing a hoodie, and Jennifer only saw man number three's shadow and heard his voice as she was told to stare at the ground. She said her mom and dad were also kneeling nearby. Hmm. Two men screamed at her mother, Bick, about her wallet. Bick did not understand what the men were saying, and Jennifer tried to translate. Hmm. They were asked repeatedly to give all the money they had in the house. Han gave the men $60 from his wallet. So it certainly seemed like money is a motive here. Jennifer told the men she had money in her room, around $2,000 she'd been saving for a new iPhone. She was taken upstairs where she gave the money, and she said after more rummaging, the men found more money. Around $1,100 American, her parents had saved from a recent trip to the States. Rather than take her downstairs again, she was tied to the stairs with a shoestring. According to Jennifer, this is when things escalated. The men then went back downstairs to Bick and Han, leaving Jennifer alone tied to the stairs. They were saying, you lied to us, and all you had to do was cooperate. Hmm. Hmm. The men began the process of taking Bick and Han Pan down to the basement. Bick was yelling that she wanted her daughter with her. Jennifer claimed she then heard a man saying, this is taking too long. Hmm and some more inaudible talking, and then two pops, followed by three more. At some point, one of the men said, that's enough, let's go. Oh, chilling. The men left, and this is when Jennifer made that 911 call. 
Detective Slade leaves Jennifer alone in the interrogation room for about 15 minutes. During that time, she wanders the room, recoiling when he re-enters. Jennifer recoils again when another police officer enters to give her back her cell phone. It's interesting that she's recoiling from the police who are yeah. there to help. Yeah. But, I mean, this person has also just suffered a trauma. Absolutely. You, you would be jumpy. You'd, yep. be, you'd be antsy. Slade then has Jennifer sign a consent form for a search of her phone. That, he claims, is a time stamping of the night's events. Mm-hmm. He extends the period of phone record search to nine days prior rather than just that night. Okay. I guess they do have to stipulate that on the search warrant. Yes. Jennifer looks rather concerned as Slade downplays the search warrant's importance or what it might reveal. Mm. Phone records would be very important later on in this yep. case. Yep. And the interview ends. Luckily, Jennifer's brother Felix was away studying mechanical engineering at McMaster's, but he was questioned that night as well. Yeah, yeah. Obviously. Understandably. Neighbors in the Markham area were terrified. Here's a global TV report days after the shooting. Evidence markers show the blood trail left by the wounded husband of Beha Pan as he ran to the neighbor's house on Monday night desperate for help after his wife was fatally shot. Investigators have not said any more about a motive for the deadly home invasion, but because police say this appears to be a random attack, many in the community are on edge. Oh, scared. Very scared. Terrifying, actually. Detectives went to Sunnybrook Hospital today to speak with Pan's husband. He remains in the critical care unit. Were you able to interview the victim? We did not interview the victim at this point. That's why you came? Uh, We came to check on his status. The victim's daughter and son are sitting vigil by their father's side now also mourning their grandfather, who died last night in an unfortunate coincidence. Investigators have also set up a mobile command post for anyone who may have information on the murder and in an effort to calm the fears of neighbors. I'm always telling people that most intruders do not want to have interactions with people. They want to rob a house and that's what they happen to do for a living. This security expert says he is surprised by the deadly violence seen in the Pan home. Not surprisingly, business is brisk as many want more protection. We just thinking about like put some security have the video camera. Clearly, neighbors were pretty worked up about what was going on there. No matter what happened, to have your a shooting happen next door and a death, that's gonna rock your whole neighborhood. We had a murder in our neighborhood a couple of years ago where a, a hockey mom was beaten to death with a rock just yep. across the street from us here. Well, there was a gangland shooting right at my daughter's school on Friday at one in the morning, so yep. they had to have counselors at the school today for that. Welcome to Surrey. Yeah, well, welcome. Welcome to the new world. Yeah. There were already a lot of holes in Jennifer's story, although the police weren't saying so publicly. Mm-hmm. There were two luxury vehicles, a Lexus and a Mercedes, in the garage. The keys were right there for someone to take beside the door. Yeah, I mean, for sure, that that's something that I would be questioning. The biggest question of all is, if they were shooting witnesses, why leave Jennifer alive? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cops were watching her every move very early on. Yeah. Three days after her first interview, Jennifer spoke to Detective Slate again. This time, the interview went over four hours. It's clear that Slade and other investigators had been talking to other people since the first night as he seemed much more informed. Yeah, absolutely. And and I wish my name was Detective Slade. That's a great name. Detective Slade? Well, I'll take even like Sergeant Slade or um, Private Slade. I don't care. It just It just sounds so cool. Fantastic. It is. This time Jennifer looks much more put together. 
Her hair is pulled back into a ponytail. She wears a white collarless shirt, black long sleeve sweater, and jeans. She looks actually a little older in this video as well. Hmm. Her demeanor is also slightly more confident, but she wrings her hands in front of her throughout. As the talk approaches the crime, Jennifer becomes more emotional and non-responsive, apparently confused. I mean, which all, again, could be chalked up to anxiety from the trauma. Absolutely. Slade leaves again briefly, and when he comes back into the room, he talks about the front door and whether it was unlocked. Mm. Jennifer's demeanor changes again, and she becomes very calm, articulating that the door is usually locked. Mm -hmm. Slade then wants to talk about Jennifer's past. This is where things get interesting. Jennifer admits she had a boyfriend named Daniel. Even though she was almost 18 years old at the time the relationship was developing, Han forbade Jennifer seeing Daniel. Mm -hmm. Here's some audio from that interview of Jennifer explaining that her father was against her relationship with Daniel. And uh, so who was against you having a boyfriend? My father. Your father? How was your mother in this? She took a back seat to his opinion. Um, she would tell me that I gotta find someone who was devoted to me. But at that time, she just- As Jennifer talked to Slade, she admitted to more and more deception of her parents. Mm. Not only did she keep seeing Daniel, the relationship continued for six years into Jennifer's 20s. All that while, she kept it a secret. Wow. Han and Bick wanted Jennifer to become a pharmacist, but her school marks were not good enough to get her into college. Mm. She'd been lying to her parents, manipulating her report cards for years, since she was 14, apparently. Wow. Giving herself all A's. Their expectations were high, and she felt that she could not measure up, so she learned to cheat. So she'd been doing this for quite a long time, this kind of uh, lying. So th this is somebody who's very, very good at, at lying. being deceptive. Yeah. In fact, Jennifer had not even graduated high school as she was a credit short. Oh. Jennifer had to keep her lie going and told her parents she was going to Ryerson to take a Bachelor of Science, when all the while she was working at Eastside Mario's, and heading over to Daniel Wong's to be with him. Wow, so saying that she's going to school but actually working a job and doing this for a long time, like that is some pretty heavy deception. That's like uh, Casey Anthony level yeah. deception right yeah, there. Yeah. Finally, she was caught when she was seen being dropped off by Daniel at the place where the pans were early picking her up. Uh-oh. She claimed her parents were livid. They also caught her out for not going to school, they had tried to drop her off at the hospital where she said that she was working, but somebody in the hospital told them that there wasn't even any volunteers there. Oh. Yeah. Uh-oh. Han said, as Daniel was half Filipino, he was not a good fit for Jennifer. Oh, boy. He was also known for selling marijuana, but Jennifer claimed she was unaware and uninvolved. Okay. Here's Jennifer talking about the punishment that Han doled out to her after catching her with Daniel and uncovering her lies about work and school. Remember, Jennifer is a 22-year-old woman at the time. The punishment sounds like something that would be more appropriate for a preteen. When your parents find out, uh, what happens to you at home? They pretty much uh, make sure that I wouldn't contact him again. And how do they do that? They take away my cell phone and restrict internet access like they have to be in the room or not at all do you have a curfew 
if I go out with a friend that they know, I have to be home before 9. Before 9 o'clock? Yes. And is that even up until Monday? Did you have a curfew up until Monday? Uh, technically, but I don't. I haven't gone out for a while. And why is it that you haven't gone out for a while? Because they gave me an ultimatum to either choose Daniel or to choose them about a year and a half ago, or two about a year and a half ago, and I chose to stay home with my family. What can you even do before nine o'clock? I don't know. Wow. Jennifer was only allowed to have friends, male and female, who fit Han and Bick's idea of acceptable, i.e. highly educated and well-rounded, something Daniel Wong was not. According to them. According to them. Jennifer had spent the last year and a half of her life teaching piano to local students at the Pan Home. Her parents had re-enrolled her in university, and that was about to start. Oh, okay. She did continue talking to Daniel and seeing him on the sly, even though Daniel had moved on. Jennifer was jealous that he had a new girlfriend. In an attempt to get him back, Jennifer lied to Daniel, telling him she was gang-raped in her home by a group of strangers. Oh, that's a pretty heavy lie. Oh, wow. The ploy didn't work. Daniel didn't come running back. Yeah. Jennifer said that she'd gotten weird text messages from what she thought was Daniel's girlfriend telling her to stay away. Well, yeah, understandably. Jennifer even told Daniel that she'd been sent a bullet in the mail, but this was also a lie. Mm-hmm. After more questioning about friends, Slade leaves again for a time. Jennifer wanders around the interrogation room again until an off-screen female police officer comes in and informally chats with Jennifer. She keeps saying over and over throughout all of her interviews, I don't want to say anything wrong. To me, that rings of somebody who has has recovered. Something to hide. And been lying for so long about so much. You don't know anymore what's real and what's not. Your lies get compounded. Mm -hmm. And so like that, that's why she doesn't want to say anything that that could be wrong because, well, she doesn't really know what's right anymore. After about 30 minutes, Slade re-enters. Jennifer is sobbing head and hands at this point, and she seems exasperated. Hmm. He lets her know what she's feeling is normal and that she should stick with victim services. Yep. He was a very compassionate police officer, in yeah. my opinion. Yep, I agree. Toward the end of the second interview, Slade zeroes in on the gorilla in the room. Why would the intruders only shoot Mr. and Mrs. Pan? Why was Jennifer left alone? As soon as you hear the, the story, you wonder that exact same thing, or at least I did. Here's more audio of Detective Slade and Jennifer Pan during that part of the interview. Generally, random events are not, in most cases, random. There's a rhyme or reason why they've come to your house. But from what you've told me inside the house, the only thing that you hear them saying to you is they're looking for money. So you're telling me that you, you had no involvement in what happened meaning not saying how the outcome came, but you you had no involvement in, in any type of illegal activity that would have drawn you or the attention of you to have bad people come to your house looking for large sums of money. Jennifer shakes her head no. You're not involved in this any which way. Jennifer shakes her head no again. Because the question obviously stands, Jennifer, is you're upstairs and they're downstairs right? So it's a natural concern when, why would they leave you alone? Why would they not do the same to you? 
you can't answer that question? The only thing I can say is he said I cooperated. She cooperated. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Case closed. Slade leaves again for a time, and when he comes back, he says they're done for now. Jennifer intimates that she was scared by the questions he was asking earlier. Hmm. Slade asks Jennifer if she lied. Again, she says no. Mm -hmm. The second interview ends with Slade letting Jennifer know the investigation is ongoing and that at this point, all avenues are still being looked into. Yeah, I wonder how she's feeling at this point. Terrified. Yeah. At one point during the second interview, Slade told Jennifer they had already talked to Daniel. He claimed he hadn't spoken to Jennifer at all recently. Daniel gave them a couple of tidbits of information they were keeping in their back pockets. They wanted to see if Jennifer would give him up on her own. Namely, that he had given her an iPhone to use as a secret phone. Well, now. She didn't give that up. And with that, we'll take a break. And we're back. Han Pam was awake and on the mend after a three-day induced coma, and he was talking. Wow. As he chatted with police, Han was clearly in a lot of pain. He still had shattered bones in his neck. The bullet had gone through a bone in his eye, and he still had bullet fragments in his face as well. Oh, dear God. The bullet had actually grazed his carotid artery. Only millimeters more one way, and this would have been a double murder with one less witness. Oh, wow. Han had also been shot in the shoulder. He told police that two large black men and a white man terrorized he and Bick, but from Jeremy Grimaldi's book, A Daughter's Deception, the Jennifer Pan story, quote, he reveals to the officers that while he and Bick were being terrorized under the threat of gunfire, his daughter was comfortable and freely moving around the house. Mm, that is interesting. Han said that Jennifer seemed comfortable with the men, chatting quietly with them. Han also recalled before the shooting, his wife asked him in Cantonese, how could they enter the house? Mm. Han had replied, I don't know, I was sleeping. At that point, one of the gunmen said, shut up, you talk too much. This is some pretty damning uh, statements from the father. Han remembered checking the door earlier and it was locked. Yeah. There was only one other person at home that night. Han did not come right out and accuse his daughter of being involved, but... Ask police pointedly to use everything at their disposal to find out who did this. Leave no stone unturned. Yeah. What a shitty place to be for the father. Family later said that Han did not want to see his daughter, although she insisted in getting into the hospital the days after the shooting. That says a lot. On November 15th, 2010, Bik Ha Pan was laid to rest it is later noted that Jennifer complained about not having any help in the planning of the funeral. Poor Jennifer. Yeah. Two weeks later, Jennifer was in the same interrogation room at the Markham Detachment. Her third time in police questioning was another marathon session, this time four hours and 42 minutes. Oh, wow. This time, it was another investigator, Detective William Gates, asking the questions, and Gates is spelled G-O-E-T-Z. That's interesting. I, some people might pronounce it Gertz, but he pronounced it Gates. Okay. Jennifer looked stressed from the beginning. 
Again, she's dressed tidily in a white-collared shirt and jeans, and her single braid has returned. Almost right away, the discussion gets into that second cell phone that Jennifer's parents did not know about. Mm. She admitted that Daniel had given it to her. This is one of the pieces of good information that Daniel had given them early on. Jennifer would use it to make calls and text friends privately. A lot of similar ground is covered by Gates and Jennifer. Gates gets into investigative techniques and a crude explanation of how evidence is gathered by way of cell phone tracking and satellites. Yeah. It's quite entertaining to listen to him speak. Yeah, I've heard, I heard a lot of that. About two hours and 27 minutes in, Gates changes tack. It's no longer an interview. He starts an interrogation confronting Jennifer. Mm-hmm. Here's some more audio. So at the end of the day, from this case, and I can tell you I've spent literally a week on this case going over information after information, accessing all these sources, speaking to every other expert on the case, okay? And at this point, Jennifer, I know that you've not been truthful with the police, okay? You've not told us everything that you know, purposely, okay? And that you've left information out, okay? There's a number of inconsistencies in what you've told the police, okay? One of the things you have to remember is that your dad was there, okay? And your dad had a front row seat to all of this, okay? And your dad's a very smart man, okay? And he has a very clear perception of what's going on. And he tells a very truthful story because I've gone through this whole process with him. Okay, I've had to do the same thing. And I know he's being truthful, okay? The problem is that your story, what you're telling is not truthful, okay? And we have to clear this up. Gates goes on to challenge Jennifer's version of the events, telling her he knows she's lying about multiple things. He's very pointed in his conversation. Jennifer quietly plays with her braid, watching Gates speak. Gates begins to come around again to Jennifer's side. He starts empathizing with her about the lack of freedom she had at home and the loss of her boyfriend who had since moved on with another woman. Yeah, empathizing is a good tactic. Jennifer remained quiet, other than the most inaudible peep or two over the next half hour. Finally, at 2.58, that's two hours and 58 minutes, (laughs) on the transcription time code, Jennifer mutters, What happens to me? Interesting. Gates asked Jennifer what she would like to see happen. She says, justice for my mom. I wonder how she defines that. After more pushing, Jennifer began to talk. She said yes, she was involved, but the men were supposed to kill her, not her parents. Gates was clearly not buying what Jennifer is selling, but pushed on. Jennifer had now confessed to involvement in the planning, but stopped short of admitting to the murder of her mom and attempted murder of her dad. Yep, manipulation. She told Gates that she had been dealing with a man called Homeboy, whose number she'd gotten from a friend's roommate. He said that he'd kill Jennifer for a fee. Jennifer said on the night of the shootings, Homeboy texted her the signal, VIP access. She unlocked the door, as they'd agreed, and went upstairs to the study and turned the light on for a minute, and off again to let them know that the door was open. 
Gates was getting very angry at Jennifer's insistence that she'd been the target. She was a disappointment to her family, she said, so she'd put a hit out on herself. But there would have been much easier ways to accomplish that. Absolutely. The smell of bullshit was ripe in the room, but half the truth at least was there. Gates left the room briefly, presumably to determine with his co-investigators whether he'd gotten enough from Jennifer. He must have. Mm -hmm. Gates returned and arrested Jennifer for the murder of her mother, the attempted murder of her father, and conspiracy to commit murder on both her parents. When instructing her about obtaining a lawyer, Jennifer says, I thought you were on my side. How naive. The video ends with Jennifer curled up in her chair holding her head in her hand. Someone who has a background in law enforcement or interrogation techniques will recognize the tactics used by Slade, and especially Gates, as classic applications of the Reed technique. And this technique has been successfully used in many cases in Canada. No, the controversial Mr. Big technique is not the only tool in law enforcement's bag of tricks, albeit it's a very effective one. A very good example of the successful application of the Reed technique is in acquiring Colonel Russell Williams' confession. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a fascinating confession. And this is a case we plan to cover in the very near future. Yeah, but it is a perfect example of this, yeah. But there's also the chance of false confessions when using the Reed technique as well. That's one of the caveats Mm -hmm. that they mention about it. Although poorly handled, the Brendan Dassey interrogation is yep. the read technique as well. Yep. It's a terrible application of yep, it because they're feeding, they're feeding yep. the information. So here's some audio uh, from Global TV News on the day of Jennifer's arrest. It was a crime that shocked the city. A violent home invasion in Markham that left one woman dead and her husband in hospital with serious gunshot wounds. But at a news conference this afternoon, York Region Police revealed a shocking twist. The couple's daughter has now been charged. 24-year-old Jennifer Penn has subsequently been charged with first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. Initially, investigators thought Penn was a victim, tied up and held hostage along with her parents in their Markham home. But now police say Penn actually helped plan the attack, allegedly conspiring with three armed suspects to shoot and kill her 53-year-old mother, Beha Pan, and shoot her 57-year-old father, Huey Han Pan, several times. That's really strange news for me. Neighbors in this quiet Markham neighborhood say while they are surprised by the twist in this tragic case, the charges give them some peace of mind. A sense of relief, definitely, Mm -hmm. Uh, that it wasn't random and that uh, someone has been charged. But police say the investigation is far from over. They are still searching for three suspects believed to be armed and dangerous. The first is described as male, black 20 to 25 years old, 6 feet 2 inches tall with a muscular build. The second is male, black 20 to 25 years old, between 6 feet and 6 foot 2 with a medium build. And the third is described as a white male, 20 to 25 years old, 6 feet tall with a heavier build and a round face. Police have not commented on a possible motive. Pan's father, Huey Han, is now out of hospital and in recovery, knowing the charges his daughter now faces and the hunt for the killers. We will leave no stone unturned in bringing the individuals responsible for this murder and this attempted murder to justice. Jennifer Pan appeared in court today. She was remanded in custody until her next court appearance, November 30th. In Markham, I'm Marianne Demain. Back to you. With Jennifer arrested, more resources could be put into finding the three men who'd actually perpetrated the crime. Three days after Jennifer's arrest, the call logs from the iPhone that Daniel had given her came back. Mm. Daniel himself had been lying to the police. Oh. He said he hadn't heard from Jennifer lately, 
However, on November 8th alone, the day the pans were shot, he called Jennifer 14 times and texted her another 36 times. Hmm. The iPhone that Daniel had provided Jennifer turned out to be the key to the investigation. Yeah, I bet. There was much more, though. Jennifer had been plotting murder at least since the spring of 2010. Damn. With another friend from elementary school, Jennifer planned another hit on her father that fell through. Holy shit. The old school chum introduced her to his roommate, who Jennifer claims took $1,500 from her that she'd earned from teaching piano lessons. The idea was to murder Han Pan in the parking lot of his work. The two agreed to arrange a date later, but the man stopped answering Jennifer's calls. I guess he got the money, so... Well, it's one of those situations, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, exactly. She'd been ripped off. She confronted the man in July, and he denied making the plan with her. He returned a portion of the cash, $200, claiming that's all she'd given him for a night out. Nothing more. <laughs> it was around this time that Jennifer began chatting and flirting with Daniel Wong again. Hmm. She told Daniel what had been going on, and the two hatched a plan to have Bick and Han killed. They would live together off the proceeds of the estate she'd have to split with her brother Felix. Jennifer estimated her take to be around half a million bucks. Yep, well, that's a substantial motive. I'd do a lot of things for 500000 Not kill anybody or no. hurt anybody. This is when Daniel gave Jennifer the iPhone and SIM card. She was only to use for conversation with Daniel and his acquaintance, Lenford Crawford, a.k.a. Homeboy. Daniel said Homeboy could fix their problems. Crawford told Jennifer that although the rate for contract homicide was typically $20,000, he'd give her a friend rate of 10000 bucks, as he knew Daniel. Well, that's mighty kind of him. Right? That's really, really generous. 50% discount. Here's a 50% friend discount There's of murder. A, a hitman with coupons. <laughs> I guess so. Wow. Homeboy scouted the Pan's neighborhood on Halloween night. I guess he'd fit right in with the rest of the creeps. <laughs> on November 2nd, 2010, that was supposed to be the day of the event. Police searches of the text messages between Jennifer and Daniel that day show that there were some cracks in the alliance. Mm. Jennifer claimed she had concerns about Daniel's loyalty. He was with another woman at the time, after all. Mm. From an article in Toronto Life by Karen K. Ho. Quote, Jennifer texted Daniel, so you feel for her what I feel for you? Then call it off with homeboy. Daniel responded, I thought you wanted this for you. Jennifer replied to Daniel, I do, but I have nowhere to go. Daniel wrote back, call it off with homeboy. You said you wanted this with or without me. Jennifer wrote, I want it for me. The next day, Daniel texted, I did everything and lined it all up for you. It seemed Daniel wanted out of the arrangement, but within hours they reverted to their old ways of texting and flirting. Later that day, Crawford texted Jennifer, I need the time of completion. Think about it. Jennifer wrote back, Today is a no-go. Dinner plans out, so we won't be home in time. Over the following week, there was a flurry of text and phone conversations between Jennifer, Daniel, and Crawford. On the morning of November 8th, Crawford texted Jennifer, after work, okay, will be game time, end quote. Yeesh. And it was. After search warrants for text messages and call records for all the phones of the people involved, police were able to paint a chilling picture of a cold-blooded murder-for-hire plot. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The three men police believed were perpetrators of the murder were all arrested and charged with first-degree murder, 
attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. Their names are Eric Sean Carty, David Milvaganam, and Lenford Roy Crawford. Of course, Daniel Chi Kwong Wong was also arrested and charged with the same crimes. Mm-hmm. Eric Carty, police believed, played a major role in the violence in the Pan home. He was on the lam at the time for the murder of another former associate, Kirk Matthews, when the pan crime took place. Jeez, good guy. When he was arrested for what happened with the pans, he had already been in custody facing that other murder charge. Wow. He was the man who'd been handling Jennifer throughout the ordeal. Homeboy Lenford Crawford was allegedly the man with the plan, enlisting Cardi and David Milvaganam to assist with the crime. Trial dates were set and all were to be tried together, but Eric Carty's lawyer was taken ill, and his trial had to be postponed. So the other defendants and Jennifer went to trial. Jennifer took the stand in her own defense, testifying for seven days. Holy cow. The jury did not believe Jennifer's story. She played the misunderstood victim throughout. I wonder wonder if it was her request to take the stand, because that's usually a no-no. I don't know for sure. I, I don't know the ins and outs of that one, but... The verdict came. It was guilty on all charges for the defendants. Here's some more audio from Global News. As soon as the verdict was announced, I saw Jennifer Pan very dramatically look to the ground, and she basically stayed in that position for a long time. At one point, I did see her clutching the hand of her defense lawyer, and then after that, she did start to cry, and she was wiping away tears with a tissue. But perhaps what was even more emotional when this verdict was announced was when the verdict was announced for the co-accused, the three men, who were also found guilty of first-degree murder and attempted murder. Because when their verdicts were read out loud, there was a woman in the courtroom, presumably a relative or uh, a friend who was screaming hysterically and then ran out the courtroom. But unfortunately, none of the relatives would speak with us. The father of the co-accused refused to speak, but Jennifer Pan's defense lawyer summed up their reaction to the verdict. Ms. Pan is is devastated by the result. Um, It was not expected. Um, This whole event is a tragedy for her whole family, including herself. Pan's been convicted of plotting to kill her parents and staging a home invasion. Her mom and dad had disapproved of a relationship with her then-boyfriend, Danny Wong, who was also found guilty. The evidence didn't point to his guilt. That's my perspective. I'm his lawyer. I appreciate that. But, you know, I also respect the jury system. Pan testified she hired people to have herself killed, not her parents, and then called off the deal. She explained in court she was suicidal, believed she was a failure, had lied to her parents about going to university. According to Pan, the intruders broke into the family's home, tied her up, and shot her parents. But the jury didn't buy it. Her father, who survived two gunshot wounds, testified Jennifer was never tied up and saw his daughter speaking quietly to the intruders that night. He also told the jury he had given his daughter an ultimatum before the shooting. Stop seeing Danny Wong or wait until I'm dead. This case is far from over. The sentencing will take place in January. Also important to know that there was a fifth person who was accused of the same crimes, but because his lawyer fell ill, he will be tried separately. What does this guilty verdict mean? Well, it means life with no chance of parole for 25 years, but Jennifer Pan will be appealing this decision. Cindy Palm, Global News in Newmarket. Jesus, I, it, I'm, her reaction is, I bet you she really feels that she's the victim. I bet you she really does. All those tears are for her being caught, her going to jail. Mm-hmm. Ugh. 
Han and his son Felix gave victim impact statements at the sentencing hearing. Here's some of Han's statement. When I lost my wife, I lost my daughter at the same time. I don't feel like I have a family anymore. On the day Bika died, I feel like I died too. My life totally changed that day. Some say I should feel lucky to be alive, but I feel like I am dead too. I can't work anymore because of my injuries, and I have given up all the things I used to love to do, like gardening, working on cars, and listening to music. There's no joy in any of that anymore for me. I miss my wife so much. She knew me better than anyone and cared about me. I'm so lonely without her. We were married for almost 30 years. Bikha was a good wife and a good mother. Hmm. Wow. Heartbreaking. Wow. Yeah. Felix had a harder time expressing himself, essentially pointing to this event as one he felt held him back from getting the start in life that he wanted. And this haunted him. Yeah, yeah, understandably. All were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 25 years. Here's Jennifer's lawyer with some spin from Jennifer's perspective after the trial. I think that you can interpret her tears if you incorporate what she said on the stand. She never wanted, it was her testimony, for November 8th to happen, and she didn't wasn't aware that it was happening, and she never wanted her mother ever to be hurt. I get that that's his job. Yeah. But what a load of shit. <laughs> big, big fucking steaming pile oh, of shit. Oh, my God. Excuse my French. Oh. Jennifer was also given a no contact order in regard to her family. Although she wants to connect with them, this has not happened yet, as far as we're aware. Yeah, you don't say. I'm sure especially Han wants nothing to do with her. Who knows where life can take you and forgiveness and whatnot, but <clears throat> yeah. I mean, wow. strict parenting is uh, one thing. Uh, and I'm not saying she didn't have a right to dislike her parents or, or have conflict with her parents. We weren't there. It's tough to say. But without a doubt, that sounds like a very, very challenging home environment. But you don't solve your... You're tw- you don't you're, murder your parents. You leave. You're 24. Get a fucking job and move out. Yeah, it's exactly. I mean, Jesus. Yeah. Eric Shankardi took a plea deal on Friday, December 4th, 2015. He pled guilty to conspiracy to commit murder. I don't know why they gave him, uh, I guess they didn't want to spend the money on another full trial, maybe? Yeah, but uh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for, for 18 years. Mm, okay. However, the other murder that he'd committed, he got life 25 for, so it just doesn't matter. Oh, okay. Yeah, so the other... So this crime... uh, Which he's serving concurrently, and we can get into that whole consecutive concurrent debate if we'd like, but it doesn't matter for this guy because he was serving time in Kent Institution here in BC when he was found dead in his cell on April 26, 2018. Oh, well now. Cardi had been stabbed once in prison already. However, as of this writing, there's been no coroner's inquest yet into his death as his practice here in BC when a prisoner dies in custody. Who knows what happened, but he's dead. Jennifer is serving her time in the Grand Valley Institution for Women in Kitchener, Ontario. Mm. And if you look this place up, it looks like a pretty easygoing time in there. I'm not okay with that. She's uh, she She's communicating with Daniel still. 
Jesus Christ. Uh, as she continues to appeal her conviction and her sentence. I mean, I'm all for minimum security prison for the right people. This is... I a, wouldn't say it's minimum security. It's probably... Uh, it looks pretty locked down, but... They also security. have like little houses that yeah. the girls live in and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, like, uh, which I fully support. I just don't think when you are convicted of murder. She shouldn't be doing the easiest time of all of them. No, exactly. No. And she's complained that the beds aren't very comfy oh, in some of oh her letters to Daniel. God. Oh my God. <laughs> Good. They take the mattress out when they complain. That's what I take. Oh, you think it's not comfy? Well, here. That's from Jeremy Grimaldi's book, A Daughter's Deadly Deception, The Jennifer Pan Story. It was a great help, mm. as well as the other sources that we'll link in our show notes. And we've already mentioned Case Files, episode 50. So yeah. go and have a listen to that. Yeah, please do. After this one. After this one. Yeah. Well, it's too late now because you've already listened. If you've listened to Case Files, you need to unlisten to it. Listen to ours and then listen to his again. Well, I don't know. I, I listen to Case File first. Shh, don't let the cat out of the bag. Well, why not? I, there's other podcasts out there other than this one. There are no. You watch your mouth. And, and our take is always going to be our unique yeah. take. No, it's really it's really a great episode. We recommend it. Yep. I recommend that whole damn podcast. So we want to finish off by saying thank you to our latest Patreon patrons. First up is Stephanie Da Silva Prades. Oh, great name. I don't know where you're from, Stephanie, but uh, that is that is a great, great name. It sounds like Brazilian or Portuguese. I'm sure wherever she's from, it's beautiful because she's there. Well, there you go. Huh? Isn't that nice? Scott was yeah, nice. Yeah. <laughs> Christine Ertel, and she is from Lublin, Wisconsin or Lublin, Wisconsin. Well, thanks, Christine. How close is that to uh, Plainfield, which is uh, the home Ed Gein? I I have no idea. I didn't think you would. That's yeah. why I asked. Yeah, you're and, welcome. Wow, a new patron to the show, but longtime interactor, <laughs> Maya. Oh, so, yes. Oh, she's one of the OGs of the Embryo. Maya Rosencrantz Digit. Yeah. She's from Denmark. She is. She's fantastic. She is an awesome Dane. She's I a, almost said Great Dane, but that that would be that would have been rude. Well, broken down. She is a great Danish Dane. person. Yeah, and and, uh, and you know what else? What I else? like Danishes. You know, because I'm fat, right? So like, well, I I are Danishes actually Danish whew. from Denmark. Ooh, this is the moment of the podcast right here. It's a so, highlight of the game. Maya, you are awesome. Possum. Oh, yes. And we love you lots, and thank you for becoming a patron of our show. She's a Yumberyard OG. Yeah, you are one of our original uh, gangsters for sure. OJ. OJ. Or mm. O-Y, O-Y. Oh. Original Yumber. Original Yumber Yarder. Oi. Oi. <laughs> Oi. Back to my heritage again. Oi. Oi. Um, Marianne Camella, she's from Mims, Florida. Oh, sweet. So there are sane people in Florida. I, I happen to be working with a guy who just moved here from Florida. Fantastic fella. I love the sunshine law, yeah. and I, I wish we had the sunshine law here in Canada. What's as the well. sunshine law? Well, that's why you hear all the crazy things from Florida all the time, because they have a law where the, the media can access more 
investigative things than anywhere else in the U.S. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. That's why you hear all the bonkers stuff come from Florida. It's wow. not because Florida is more crazy. Well, Florida, man. Well. I don't know. But anyway. The people I know from there are stellar. Stellar. Stellar folks. Yep. Fact. Thanks to... <laughs> Thanks so much to our patrons, past and present, for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. Oh, man, do we. If you want to help support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine, or for a one-time support, you can send us some donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. All of those are great options. Check out our website, www.darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. There's a video of us on TV there now. It, the, yeah, you which you need to see. You need to see, because we were on the television. See my twitchy face. <laughs> In my fat one. <laughs> Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine and tell your friends, because that is the most awesome thing you could possibly do. Oh, yes. Especially fun is our closed group, The Umberyard, as we've mentioned many times. Come join us. We're just over 1,200 there now. Man, that's growing. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast directory like iTunes, Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or Spotify. <laughs> and you know what we say at the end of the show. I do. Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Chowder. And come back next week for